0: So we're going to turn our attention now to Acts chapter 26. And thank you to Bobby for covering Acts 25 last week. We're moving on to Acts 26. And looking forward real quick while you guys are turning there in your Bibles, um, we're winding down the book of Acts. It's hard to believe we have spent 26 weeks in the book of Acts. Really 27. And next week I plan to double up and do Acts 27 and Acts 28 together. And we're going to teach you those two chapters and get closure on the whole book of Acts. And, uh, and we'll go on from there. But Acts 26 is where we're at this week. Now, before we jump into it, let me quiz you guys as usual. And I will say, yeah, my older brother is here, John. Do not ask him about drawing on my head as an infant with an ink pen in the back of the back seat of the car. Yeah, he, uh, he decided to grab an ink pen and follow all the veins in my bald head when I was an infant and draw on all the veins that you could see in my head. And my mom turned around and was like, what happened to him? So anyways, you could ask him about that and other, other wonderful uh, ventures we had together. But yeah, greet him and his family. Mary Beth, his wife, is here. and It's good to have them here. But So who wrote the book of Acts? Luke did. And what was Luke's occupation? He was a doctor, a medical doctor. Yeah, and apparently a medical doctor turned historian. And who is he writing this history book to? It's really a long letter, isn't it? You guys remember his name? Theophilus. Theophilus is kind of the mystery man. We don't really know much about Theophilus. His name means friend of God. We don't know much other than that. He has a good Greek name. How many chapters are in the book of Acts? 28. And how many years of our movement's history does it cover? 28 to 30 years. Yeah, it's easy to remember, right? And what is one major theme that Luke is trying to discuss or one major question that he's trying to answer while writing the book of Acts? Anybody remember? What, so what about you? What do we do with the Gentiles? Yeah, this Messiah of ours is a Jewish Messiah. He's come to the people of Israel. But it seems like for some reason, this movement is really spreading within a demographic of people that are non-Jews. And how do they fit into this equation? Because we didn't really think about that. All right, that was like, what do we do with the Gentiles? Do the Gentiles have a place in the age to come? And if so, what do they have to do to get there? It was a big question. I saw another hand up somewhere. Yeah, Michael. Verifying Paul's yeah, verifying the credibility and the apostleship of Paul. Very good, very good. What's another question or theme that was being answered in the book of Acts? I talked about it a couple weeks back. Think geographically here. Geographically. His name? Yeah, Paul's ne- name never changing from Saul to Paul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the corrupt Sanhedrin justice versus the Romans' sense, better sense of justice for some reason this moment. What about this? From Jerusalem to Rome. How did the gospel go from Jerusalem to Rome? And how did it spread so quickly? How did it get there? Luke is trying to piece those, th- that story together through the book of Acts. And we find the main character of these last several chapters is a man none other than Paul, right? Paul was a Pharisee. Um, I believe he more than likely sat on the Sanhedrin, the highest court of Israel. And uh, he's a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. And he's in custody of the Romans for two years at this point in the city of Caesarea. And I've got a map here. I'd like to show you guys right here. You see this is uh, Jerusalem is over here. Caesarea is up along the coast. Noah, could you turn the front lights off for me? Uh, Caesarea is up here along the front, uh, along the Mediterranean coast. This is a very Roman city. It had a, uh, it had a, uh, all, the, all the accoutrements of a ro- good Roman city right there on the coast had a good port. It had a big amphitheater. But also it was the, the governmental capital of the Roman occupation. This is where the, the, the Roman governor adjudicated. This is where his headquarters were right there on the coast. Paul has been in custody there for about two years. His, his, his life was in danger back in Jerusalem. And he's kind of like a political pawn at this point. And they don't really know what to do with him because he hasn't broken torah law nor has he broken roman law either and they don't they can't put him to death they really shouldn't be keeping him in custody like they are but somebody's got some political favors they need to repay and that's where we pick up with the story and there's some false accusations and bobby did a good job reviewing those false false accusations uh, last week they are that he was speaking against the temple, that he was defiling the temple, that he's teaching Jews to apostate from, from the Torah, apostasize from the Torah. And what else? Bringing Gentiles, bringing Gentiles into the temple, yeah, and defiling it, yeah. And, and here, Paul is flatly denying all of those accusations. And Bobby did a good job of saying last week that sometimes we still falsely accuse him of those things, don't we? Yeah. Unfortunately. So go with me to Acts, let's actually pick up in in Acts 25 uh, 25 and looking at verse 23. It says, so the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with much fantasia. They came with much, this is where we get the word fantasy from. They entered the audience room accompanied by military commanders and the prominent men of the city. So picture this, as they're coming in, with much fantasia and much fantasy. You know, um, leaders and rulers like fantasy, don't they? Um, They like to come in with a lot of pomp and circumstance. They like to think of themselves as something that they're not. So picture this entry into this hall. Okay, and Herod's coming in with Bernice, who we're gonna talk about, but they're coming in and they they think that they're something, don't they? They have this air of fantasy. Uh, We're somebody important, right? And rulers get that way sometimes. And let me, let me review real quick with you the, the, the Herods of the New Testament. Because sometimes when you look at the Herods, Herod Agrippa, Herod Antipas, your eyes tend to roll in the back of your head and you think, wait, which Herod am I talking about? There's, here's the main Herods of the New Testament. Starts with Herod the Great. He was the Bethlehem baby killer guy, right? All right. Then there's Herod Archelaus. He was the guy Joseph said, let's go to Nazareth instead of back to Bethlehem. Then there's Herod the Antipas. He was known as the killer of John the Baptist. And these guys are all related. These are all sons, grandsons, great-grandsons. Then there's Herod Philip, probably the the tamest of them all. He ruled an area northeast of Galilee. Then there's Herod Agrippa I. He was known for having James the the apostle beheaded. He was later eaten by worms, if you recall that story in the book of Acts. Then we get to this Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II. He is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. And he is the one that is with Bernice, sitting in this room about to hear the testimony of Paul. But look at this legacy that he has. And he walks in the room with this fantasy, right? Fantasia, this pomp and circumstance, thinking he's somebody that he's not. And he comes in, this long line of murderers, a long line of people who are living in incestuous relationships, long line of people who are politically manipulative, This is the trial right here. These are the people who are questioning Paul and trying Paul. So who's this Bernice character? (laughs) Long story short, it is the incestuous lover and sister of Agrippa. Josephus and other historians write about their, their relationship, and I'll leave it at that. So Agrippa II walks in with his sister, who is his mistress, And they're sitting down to hear what the Apostle Paul has to say. And they're going to decide his fate. Picture that. What does Paul look like in this situation? Paul comes in. The best description that we have of Paul in the physical is from a second century document called the Acts of Paul. This is a second century Christian document. It says that Paul was a man of middling size and his hair was scanty. And his legs were a little crooked, and his knees were far apart. He was (laughs) bow-legged. He had large eyes, and his eyebrows met. We call that a unibrow. And his nose was somewhat long. He was like hunched over. Picture the difference there. So in comes Paul. He's probably nearsighted. He's got a unibrow. He's bow-legged. He's very unimpressive, isn't he? And he walks into this courtroom. But he has lit a fire in all of Judea. He's lit a fire in all of the, the land of Asia Minor, hasn't he? He is this man who is, he doesn't think of himself as anything. It's actu- in, in actuality, he belittles himself on a regular basis. And he walks into this room in front of people who are living in blatant, gross, incestuous sin. And he's about to be tried by them. And look, he even says himself, his critics say, and he quotes his critics in 2 Corinthians that his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive. Except when he opens his mouth. Except when he opens his mouth, yeah. Mm-hmm. So picture that. He's standing before these people who have a fantasy of themselves, and he's about to be tried by them. And let's keep reading here. It says, Then at the command of Festus, Saul was brought in. I pictured this, this hunched over, bow legged, unibrow, nearsighted rabbi coming in kind of scuffling his feet and walking in. No fanfare, no pomp, no circumstance. And there, Festus said, King Agrippa and all of you here with us, do you see this man? The whole Judean community has complained to me about him, both in Jerusalem and here, crying that he shouldn't be allowed to remain alive. But I discovered that he had done nothing that deserves a death sentence. Now, when he himself appealed to the emperor, that is Nero, Nero, I decided to send him. However, I have nothing specific to write to Nero, his majesty, about this man. This is why I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I might have something to write. Verse 27, it seems irrational to me to send a prisoner without also indicating what the charge is against. They don't even know what this man has done wrong. (laughs) We've been keeping him for two years in custody. We don't even know what to charge him with. And here we are, these corrupt individuals. We've got we to pin something on this man. So chapter 26. Now we're in the year 59 AD. This is Paul's fourth trial. Fourth trial. You'd think if anybody... Man, if I was on trial for the fourth time, before some wicked judges, I would have a meltdown. I would just let loose on them, wouldn't I? You might do the same. And Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak on your own behalf. So then Paul motioned with his hand. And he began his apologia, his, apo- his, his defense. That's where we get the word apologics from. Verse 2. Paul's talking now. Picture the bow-legged, hunched over, unibrow, nearsighted, unimpressive person. He's about to talk. We don't know. We don't know. Maybe middle age. Here the room falls silent. All these people, these dignitaries are sitting in the room watching this little man. And he says, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you today that I am defending myself against all the charges made against me by the Jews. Because you are well informed about the Jewish customs and controversies. Now, you've got to remember, Agrippa is Jewish. I'm putting air quotes there. He's Jewish. He's Jewish. Now, he is he Idumean is and part Nabataean. He's Jewish, and the Idumeans were converts into Judaism. The Nabataeans were, were Arab. So, do you think by the larger Jewish population, the Herod, Herodian dynasty and their real Jewishness was ever questioned? Absolutely. They were mocked. They weren't really considered real Jews, but they had a desire to be accepted by the larger Jewish population, and they had a familiarity with Judaism, even though they were a little bit spotty on their observance of it. Does that make sense? They were like like half-breeds and very mediocre religious Jews. Yeah, and so Paul says, you're familiar with the Jewish customs and the controversies. What controversies could he be familiar with? Number one, is Yeshua of Nazareth the Messiah of Israel? That's a big one. Number two, is there a resurrection in the dead? Number three, do Gentiles, what do Gentiles need to do in order to have a place in the world to come? Do Gentiles need to convert to Judaism and become Jews? The calendar when holy days fall. Um, if, if the priesthood in the temple is legitimate or not, the Essenes out in the Dead Sea area believe that it was not. The the Herodian dynasty, was that legitimate? Sadducees, are they, do they have a place in the world to come? Pharisees, do they have a place in the world? All kinds of disagreements. I saw someone say the other day that, um, that Jews were united in the first century and because, because they were united in their faith. No, there were, there were so many splinter groups and divisions within Judaism, just like there is within Christianity today. And within Judaism today, there are many splinter groups and disagreements on, on doctrine. There's a lot of controversy going on in the first century. And Paul says, Agrippa, you're familiar with all these controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Verse four. So then all, the Jew, all Jews know how I lived. How do all Jews know how Paul lives? That's another piece of evidence that I believe he sat on the Sanhedrin. He was a very prominent figure. I lived my life from my youth on, both in my own country and in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time. And if they are willing, they can testify that I have followed the strictest party in our religion. And that is, I live as a paroush, a a Pharisee. Verse 6. How ironic is it now that I stand on trial here because of my hope in the promise made to our fathers. What is that promise? It's the fulfillment of this very promise that our 12 tribes hope to attain as they resolutely carry on their acts of worship night and day. Yet it is in connection with this hope. Your majesty that I am being accused by Jews. Why do people consider it incredible that God raises the dead? This is is the the line that Paul keeps bringing up when he's questioned. I'm on trial for the hope in the resurrection of the dead. You see, he's linking the resurrection of Yeshua of Nazareth with the greater resurrection that is to come. And he's saying that Yeshua was the down payment for that resurrection. He's the first fruits of that resurrection that is to come. That will be of the righteous and of the unrighteous. And he's saying Yeshua is the, the... Little sampling of that and the down payment for that greater resurrection that he conquered death. In verse 9, Paul says, I used to think it was my duty to all I could to do all I could to combat the name of Yeshua of Nazareth. And in Jerusalem I did. And after receiving authority from the head priest, I myself threw many of God's people in prison when they were put to death and I cast my vote against them which is another reason I believe he was on the Sanhedrin. He had a voting power as to what to do with this movement. So often I went to one synagogue to another, punishing them and trying, uh, trying to make them blaspheme. And in my wild fury against them, I went so far as to persecute them in cities outside, in the, outside the country. Verse 12. On one such occasion, I was traveling to Damascus with the full authority of the head priest. I was on the road, and it was noon, your majesty, When I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and traveling in my traveling companions. How many of you ever walked out of a movie theater, after you've been in a movie theater for about two hours, and you walk out and you step out into the parking lot, and you're like, ah, the sun, right? I mean, picture that times a hundred. Maybe that's what Paul experienced, that blinding light, right? And it says, we all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, Shaul, Shaul. Why do you keep persecuting me? It is hard for you to be kicking against the ox goads. This 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 uh, phrase always puzzled me for the longest time. What is an ox goad, and why is Paul kicking against it? In in ancient times, shepherds um, or or people who are driving oxen forward would have a staff that was we called it a goad. You, you've heard that phrase, "goad people forward." You, they would goad sheep or oxen or an animal, and it would be a pointy stick. Um, they would maybe make it of their own whatever materials they would have and they would poke them with it and get them moving. It wouldn't cause death or injury but if they were to kick against that goad it would cause a lot of pain and they would know I don't need to kick against the goad anymore. right? And that's kind of where that comes. Yeshua is telling him you've been kicking against the goad. I've been goading you but you've been kicking against it. You've been, you've been hushing that voice and your spirit that's telling you That I am Messiah. I said, Who are you, sir? And the Lord answered, I am Yeshua, who you are persecuting. Ani Yeshua. Just like Joseph says to his brothers, Ani Yosef. I am Joseph, right? But get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you to serve and to bear witness to what you have already seen of me and to what you will see when I appear to you in the future. I will deliver you from the people. And from the Gentiles, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they will turn from darkness and to light. From the power of the adversary to God and thus receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who have been separated for holiness by putting their trust in me. What Paul is saying here is like, when I met Yeshua on the road, he sent me to the people who are not a people. The people who are not part of my people. The people who are a non-people. The people who have not seen the light, that is the Gentiles. And where is he getting that from? That's a promise given to Israel in Deuteronomy 32. Can you guys turn over there real fast with me? Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. Deuteronomy 32, 21. Deuteronomy 32, 21. Moses is speaking prophetically here. And God is speaking through him. And basically he's saying, in the future, you, Israel, will abandon me. And you will abandon my covenant. And it says in verse 21, they aroused my jealousy with a non-God and provoked me with their vanities. And I will arouse their jealousy with a non-people. And I will provoke them with a Vile nation. In the Hebrew, it's begoy naval. A really, a, a good translation is like a is like a, a treacherous people, a treacherous nation. I will provoke you, Israel, to jealousy using someone who is a non people, a wicked people. How? How is that possible? <laughs> I remember as a story, uh, as a child, we were riding to church one Sunday morning. And we were probably, John and I were probably acting up in the car or something like that and fighting or maybe my sister was involved, I don't remember. But I remember the details of what my mom said to us as she's driving the church and she's trying to get us there on time and we were acting the fool in the back seat or whatever. She said, I would just like you, there was, the, there was this family and they were, um, they were originally from Canada and, you know, Canadians are nice. The kids were very nice. They were very well behaved and they were called the Brinner Boys, all right? Jeremiah and Micah Brenner and they, they were our friends, but they were just so well-tempered and nice. They never fought And I remember my mom's driving and she's so frustrated us fighting in the backseat She goes one day. I would just like to trade you for the Brenner boys And I remember like I was like man I just felt like a knife went through my chest that that was painful Gosh, and I was like wow. I mean we straightened up and we were like we calmed down and she probably doesn't even remember that, but and she never did trade us for the Brenner boys. Maybe she would have if it was an opportunity. But anyways, I, I got jealous. I thought, wow, she loves the Brenner boys more than us. And even when we got to church that day, you know, I, the Micah and Jeremiah Brenner got around me. I was like, man, I don't want to kind of be around you. My mom, you know, she compared me to you. I got kind of jealous over the fact that you guys are more well behaved. And it's kind of in a in a much larger way what's going on here. Uh, that God is taking for himself a people from a non-people and he's pulling them into covenants and saying, I need you to help provoke my people to jealousy. Remember, Paul says that. He talks to the Gentiles and he says, I hope that some of you might provoke my own brother into jealousy and in doing so, save them. Go to 1 Peter 2 with me real fast. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2. Peter picks up on this as well. 1 Peter 2, verse 10. First Peter two ten. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Before you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I urge you as aliens and temporary residents not to give in to the desires of your old nature, which keep warring against you. You see what's going on there? Paul is realizing his mission, his apostleship is to a people who are a non-people. A people who have not seen the light. And his job is to be a vessel of the gospel to them. And we in this room, by and large, have Paul to thank for that work. The fact that we are sitting in here worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. is probably, by and large, due to the sacrifice and the hard work of Paul. Now let's pick up in verse... um, Let's pick up in verse 19. So, King Agrippa, Paul continues, I did not disobey the vision from heaven. On the contrary, I announced first in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all of Judea, also to the Gentiles, that they should turn from their sin to God, and then just live however they want, consistent with that repentance. No. What does it say? That they should do what? My Bible says good deeds. Mm-hmm. Now, do we just make up these good deeds on the fly? <laughs> do we just go to like, church doctrine and read their website and do those deeds? Mm-hmm. What good deeds and where, where do I find these good deeds if I'm a first century Gentile turning to the second known as the way? Obedience to, the Torah. Obedience to God's commandments, yeah, which are found in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. So Paul's saying, Turn to God, then do good deeds consistent with that repentance. It was because of these things that the Jews seized me in the temple and they tried to kill me. Verse 22. However, I have had God's help so that to this day, I stand testifying to both small and great and saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would happen. Man, there's a good template for when you're standing being accused by authority figures who are corrupt. Just say nothing but what the prophets, and what Moses, and what our master, and what Paul, and what the apostles say in the word. That will get you far, won't it? Now, he said, I've only said what they would happen. Now, what is he talking about would happen? We don't have time to go through everything where it says what happened. There's around 300 prophecies given in the Hebrew Bible talking about the nature, the ministry, the death, the burial, resurrection of Messiah. And here, here, I just, I used what Paul said here and I went through and found these prophecies in the Hebrew Bible that these people should be familiar with. You can take a picture of this or I can email it to you, but we're not gonna go through all these. I'm just gonna show you that in Psalm 118, it says a Messiah will be tr- betrayed. In Zechariah 11, that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. In Psalm 22, that he would be pierced. In Zechariah 12, he would be pierced. Isaiah 52 and 53, he would take our sin. Psalm 16, that he would rise again from the dead. Isaiah 49, that he would be a light to the Gentiles. Paul is so knowledgeable of his Hebrew Bible, of his Tanakh. And he knows, all I have to do is quote these guys and that'll carry me through. And he does. He says that Messiah would die, and that he, the first to rise from the dead, will proclaim light to both the people and the Gentiles. Is he right? Is he biblical? Absolutely. Take a picture of that look him up when you go home. Verse 24. But just as he reached this point in his defense, Festus, the Roman governor, he shouted at the top of his voice, Paul! You're out of your mind. And he uses the Greek word, you're a maniac. It's where we get the, I mean, uh, mania. It's where we get the, the, the English word to be a maniac. He calls him a maniac. It's Paul, you're out of your mind because of so much learning. You got to remember, Paul was very learned. Who did he study under? Gamliel. Gamliel. The, the Talmud says about Gamliel that when Gamliel dies, the light of the Torah went out. That was Paul's teacher. And that's how highly regarded he is even today within the Jewish world. Paul was next in line to be the next big shot in all of the Jewish world. He was very well learned. Even, if you go real quick with me to Galatians 1.13, go with me to Galatians real quick. Galatians one. And I didn't bookmark it in my Bible like I typically do. So if you get there before me, and just read it loudly. Yes, verse, 13. verse 13 and 14, please. just nice and loud. For you have heard of my earlier behavior in Judaism, how I persecuted God's community beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I was even advancing within Judaism beyond many my own age among my people, being a more extreme observer of my father's traditions. You hear that? I was advancing more than anyone within the Jewish faith. The entire Jewish world... Paul was it. He was going to be the next big rabbi. And he, put, he threw it all away. But what did he gain? <laughs> he gained something far greater, didn't he? Now, he didn't abandon his faith. Don't get me wrong and don't hear me wrong. He didn't abandon his Jewishness. Like I said, he didn't become a um, comb his hair and part his hair just right Southern Baptist. <laughs> he was a Pharisee to the day he died. But he gained the Messiah didn't he? Nothing wrong if you part your hair with a comb just right. Actually, probably looks good. I need to do that. (laughs) But what's interesting here is, who is the crazy one? Festus is calling Paul a maniac. Now, if I got called a maniac by Paul, I'm sorry, by Festus and Bernice and Agrippa and all these people standing there, man, would I run off at the mouth of them. You want to sit there and call me a maniac while you're sleeping with your sister? Really? Oh, I would, just have, I would just go to town on them. Paul, what does he do? He bites his tongue. He says, I am not crazy, Festus, your excellency. <laughs> oh, on the contrary, I am speaking words of truth and words of sanity. For the king understands these matters, so to him I express myself freely, because I am sure that none of these things have been hidden from him. After all, they didn't happen in some back alley. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Verse 28, And Agrippa said to Paul, In this short time, you're trying to convince me to become a Christian? Now, Side note here, my Bible, the complete Jewish Bible, has Messianic. Cross that out. That's the, it's the Greek word Christian there. I don't like that they put Messianic. It's okay, but just put Christian. It's okay to be called a Christian and identify as a Christian. It's a biblical term. Verse 29, Paul replied, Whether it takes a short time or a long time, I wish to God that not only you, but also everyone hearing me today, might become just like me, with the exception of these chains. Wow. Notice what Paul didn't do there. Notice he didn't shoot back insults at these twisted, insane, sick, perverse people when he had every right to do so. (laughs) Self-control. Verse 30. So the king got up, and with him the governor and Bernice, and the others sitting with them, After they had left, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing that deserves either death or prison. And Agrippa said to Festus, if he hadn't appealed to the emperor, that is Nero, he could have been released. You see, God has a plan in all this. God wants Paul to go to Nero. God wants Paul to go to Rome. And he's going to give him a one-way ticket there. And it's going to be the end of Paul's life in Rome. Some lessons I pulled from the book of Acts is that an honest, in-depth study and knowledge of the Hebrew Bible leads to a confirmation of the Messianic title and kingship of Yeshua of Nazareth. Paul was so well-learned in his Torah, in his Tanakh, and he came to the conclusion, studying Scripture, Yeshua is it, there's no denying it, I'm all in. An objective, honest review of scripture will lead to that. And you should be able to defend it, and I believe that you should be able to offer an apologetic from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Bible, as to why that is. And I can help you out with that if need be. Lesson number two. Some of the greatest civilizations in human history, once detached from God's unchanging word, find themselves living in some of the most grotesque, And fantasy-driven confusion. Is our world confused right now? Ladies and gentlemen, I was walking the streets of Washington, D.C. a week ago today. And I can tell you, with my own eyes, I saw a lot of confusion. And you guys probably did as well. Now, I can look at that confusion and I can say, Ugh! Idiots! (laughs) Ugh! You voted that way? Ugh! You think guns kill people? I could do that or I could look at them and say, wow, what a pity I have for them that Yeshua died for them, that they're still confused and lost and without hope. It's easy for me to take the Fox News approach and be like, "Ugh, fools. No, I was there. (laughs) I was there and I was sick in my sin. Who am I to judge? Now, I can say, yes, you are living in sin. <laughs> yes, Bernice and Agrippa should not happen. But I love you because Yeshua died for you. And I, because I love you, I will tell you you're living in sin and you're lost and without hope. But confusion abounds. Lesson number three. The crazy are those who live and die for this fleeting world. Jim, Jim Elliot and his, his journal, uh, which became published and is now called The Shadow of the Almighty. If you haven't read it, buy it and read it. He was, uh, he was uh, martyred at the age of 28 in, um, in uh, Central, Central America. Ecuador, thank you. He is no fool, Jim Elliot says, who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Paul is aware of this. He's cognizant of it. And he's taking that approach. I don't care if I lose my physical life because I have hope in the resurrection of the dead. But in the meantime, I'm going to bring as many people into the knowledge and saving grace of our Master Yeshua. You see, Paul's paradigm is completely different than the paradigm that I might have if I was standing in his shoes. I hope to achieve that one day. Notice that Paul, even though called insane by someone who is textbook insane, textbook insane, Immoral and mentally ill, that is Agrippa II, does not use it as an opportunity to belittle or insult. He simply invokes Scripture and lets it do the talking. And I want to recommend and suggest you all do the same. I am guilty, as anyone else in this room, of belittling certain leaders that I disagree with, that I think should not be in certain positions in our country, in our state, or whatever the case may be, Don't be people who get involved in belittling them. Don't slander them. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray that they have a fear of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't get swept into that stuff. Don't get swept into the the emotion of anger and resentment. Okay? We're supposed to realize that we are citizens of an everlasting kingdom. Don't get swept up into that. Have a sober and sound mind. Paul continually uses opposition, his fourth trial, as an opportunity to share the gospel of the kingdom and to try to judge the hearts of the people who are accusing him and trying him. You notice every time he's standing before a different leader, he turns the table on them and he says, Do you believe the prophets? Do you believe scripture? What do you believe about the Messiah? He puts them on trial. God is using Paul. Now, notice Paul is not separating the wheat and chaff. God is using Paul. And he's going to go all the way up to Nero, the emperor. From Jerusalem to Rome. Now, I could look at, like I said, all the different sects and subcultures and people that I disagree with politically, morally, whatever, you name it, that I was walking and sharing the streets with last week in Washington, D.C. And I could say, ugh. I'm just waiting for them to just pounce on me and just belittle me. and do I, Or I could say, wait a second, what an opportunity. I was riding on a bus, our, our metro train shut down Saturday night, we had to take a detour and, and get up out of the metro station on the ground level, get on a bus and ride through uh, a few blocks of Washington, D.C., in Maryland actually, we were in Maryland, and then get back on the metro and drive it for another 15, the bus we got in I'm pretty certain, and I think I'm safe to say, that we were one of maybe five to six straight people on that bus. And it was clearly evident because a, 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 pride, uh, a pride celebration had just happened in, in Washington, D.C. There's was a big festival that was going on. We got on that bus. Now, I could say opposition, or I could say opportunity. I could say disgusting or I could say loved by my master and my savior. I encourage you to take that stance. Not not affirming sin, (laughs) don't get me wrong, we oppose sin, and we oppose sinful behaviors and lifestyles, right? As the moral glue that once held our nation firmly together continues to wear thin, and confusion begins to grow and grow and grow. Because you got to remember we have undercut the foundation of our nation and the in our moral and and uh, sense of justice as a collective nation that's gone. God is gone. we've got about three or four generations now where we're told that you all are evolved from pond scum. Yeah, all you children sitting in this classroom you're nothing more than pond scum. there is no God there's no purpose to your life. three or four generations now that we've taught children that and we're like. Why is there another mass shooting? Why are we killing 3,000 babies a day? I don't know. But what can we gain from it politically? Gosh, shame on us, right? We're gonna see more and more opportunities that the world might see and view as opposition. Get ready for that. View them as opportunities. Opportunities to do what? Stand before governors, judges kings emperors stand before them and what do you do yeshua says don't worry i'll give you the words to say quote scripture quote moses the prophets the gospel you'll be fine and it might cost you your life (laughs) newsflash one of the other highlights i hate to even call it that memorable parts of my trip to D.C. was going for the first time to the Holocaust Museum in D.C. Has anyone ever been there in the room? Holocaust Museum in D.C. One of the things that really like punched me in the chest when I walked into the exhibit was the Torah Ark from a uh, suburb town of Berlin. That was, this is the real Torah Ark that is on display there in a glass case um, that that they brought to Washington, D.C., But this is from a synagogue, and in this cabinet, it used to have a cabinet in there, held Torah scrolls, just like we have here at the center of of the room. For those who don't know, we have a Torah ark and a cabinet in which is our Torah scroll. In 1938, November 8th and 9th, 1938, does anyone know what that is? Crystal knock, the night of broken glass. It's the anniversary of the failed uh, beer hall pooch. Uh, the, or the Munich Pooch, which happened in 1923. The anniversary of that, now that the Nazis are in power, let's take out a revenge now, Kristallnacht, let's go in and smash all the synagogues, burn them, take their, their Torah arcs, and if you look closely, some Nazi or Nazi sympathizer took a hatchet or an ax and chopped away the words atop of their Torah arc. Now, what do you notice about those words? They're Hebrew. They match something just below it. Our Torah ark. And in Hebrew, it's Mm -hmm. Da lifnei mi Omed. Know, in English, know before whom you're standing. The Nazis are like, you know what? I don't even know what this means. It looks like something special and sacred and holy. Let's profane it. Let's chop it apart. Know before whom you stand. Paul, in Acts 26, and the rest of his life, embodies that. He knows, you know what, I'm not standing on trial before some fantasy judge, some fantasy king, some fantasy governor. I'm standing on trial before the real king of kings. And I'm going to put them on trial before the king of kings. Think about his aspect, his paradigm is so different. But this was like a punch in the chest to me. Because I immediately recognized, you know, Mary Shelley painted that across the top of our Our Torah ark. Know before whom you stand. Look at that. We are living in a society that is forgetting before whom it's standing. We're living in a society that would take God's sacred word and do things like (laughs) figuratively or even literally cut them up with knives and razors and throw them out into the streets like they did in Kristallnacht. These are Torah scrolls that were saved off the streets that have gashes and cuts across them. The Nazis didn't quite yet set them on fire. You know how much respect we give our scroll when it, when it comes out of that cabinet? We all stand, we all walk around, we face it as it walks around the room. We all reach out our hand and we touch it and we kiss it to our, touch it to our lips. We honor God's word. And we're living in a society that will continually and more perpetually dishonor God's word as being archaic, old-fashioned, irrelevant. Cling to his word. Cherish it. Honor it. But this was, if you ever get a chance to go up to Washington, definitely check that out. And this was our view for some of last Saturday. And I want to encourage you, look at this, I'm assuming, young woman as someone that is loved by our savior and in, in confusion. And to a certain extent, living in fantasy world. Don't look with contempt, look with love. Don't affirm, but love. So it was a real privilege and honor to be there because there was lots of opportunities. Is just the, sign, the the, sign in the back saying one, right? yeah. The opposite way, yeah. So, with that, let's close in prayer, and then we're going to do Q and A. We got about ten minutes or so. Ah, Father, I thank you so much for your Shabbat, and I thank you for this opportunity to study in depth the life of Paul. What a sacrificial character and figure he was! I pray that you give me a faith like him, where I can stand before governors and kings, generals and politicians. And I can absorb their insults and I can just simply speak your word and let it do its job. May we all in this room be like that where we have self-control and sound mind. We give you all the glory and praise for what you're going to do in our nation and the opportunities that will abound in our nation to share your word and your truth. I pray all this in the mighty and matchless name of Yeshua of Nazareth, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. So guys, what questions or comments do you have from today? Xavier? Thank you. Sometimes I wonder if we would be able to explain the good news from uh, new uh to people who don't accept Matthew the Revelation, you know, Yeah, uh, probably something we to be better at. I had a question as well. Uh you talked about the Song of Moses and uh provoking jealousy and Revelation. and you quoted Peter. Uh you also see a connection between he tells the Lord yeah. Yeah, and Isaiah for, Isaiah forty nine talks about it's too small of a matter to regather the remnant of Israel, but I will also make your name like a, a light to the nations. Yeah, those are um, that he is he he scatters Israel, knowing that he will regather, but knowing that he will regather more than Israel. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's connected. Yeah, Suzanne. So this just really struck me as you were sharing. By the way, I really got a lot out of it today. Thank you. Thank you. It means a lot. Um, but, you know, when you talk about this unpeople, yeah. God couldn't have taken a more a more antithesis of the Jewish yeah. because these were people that were pagan, that believed in many gods. I mean, it totally went in the face of everything. That was being taught in Judaism at the same time. So yeah. Pretty amazing when you think of that. Absolutely. The grace yeah. of God to yeah. reach down to this people. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Um, today, when you were talking about how to be pride and how it is for, for a pride. Yeah. I'm really you think that because I went to a baptist school from like seventh grade to tenth grade, you know, and a lot of the times they didn't talk about stuff like they cried about it being wrong or. Anything like that because they didn't want to be offensive to us. They didn't want to say, oh, you know, it's offensive and it totally goes against God's word. But they just wanted to be accepted and be like, you know, God loves everyone, but they did not want to talk about how it is morally wrong to be gay and follow that kind of teaching. (laughs) Yeah, and a lot of it stems from cowardice. We're too afraid to speak truth because we are afraid that it might offend them, then we are selfish and cowardly. We actually don't love them. If someone's about to drive off of a cliff and I don't want to offend them, (laughs) you know, that's selfish of me to do or to not do. Um, One of the most loving things you can do is speak truth in a loving way to someone. Um, But then again, we've got to be ready for the comebacks. And we've got to be ready to defend the validity of God's word. Is it God's word? And if so, how can we prove it? Because uh, you will get hit with that too. So, that's not for another day, another time. So, Crystal. Uh, one thing that I was very aware of recently is how very subtly our children are being attacked mm-hmm. in regards to a lot of these matters. You know, like, today I let like to Layla watch some things on Netflix, and I'm very careful about watching a couple episodes with her just to be aware of what she out about. But I yeah. think that it'll go a long time. In like one watching one of the char- it's a cartoon, and a character has a homosexual crush on spread, and i'm like where did that it mm-hmm. yeah it's really and subtle yeah I mean, mm-hmm. so i think that you know listening to, to what they're putting stuff i think that we need to be very aware now of, of you know how subtle those and normalize that behavior yeah. yeah absolutely and good for you for being discerning and watching and um, yeah, media is, is uh, social media and media in general is the best way to indoctrinate an entire people group. And, and school, school I would say, is another way to indoctrinate an entire people group. So, um, uh, you can't point to me chapter and verse as, as, and, and I mean, obviously you can point to me to your financial, financial situation and situations surrounding that, um, as to why you might put your children in a public school in this day and age. It, it better be a really good public school. Um, because there's some things coming down coming down the pipeline, and I'm friends with numerous teachers, and my brother is, is a teacher as well. There's some things coming down the, the pipeline that are going to be completely antithetical to the gospel and God's word. And if you're sending and busing your child for eight hours a day to that environment, and you're subjecting them to that, that environment, um, and then you maybe see them for 30 minutes in the evening, and it's a usually panicked 30 minutes while someone's trying to heat up corn dogs in the microwave, and and getting all this stuff, and everyone's tuckered out from work, and grumpy, and tired, um, then you've lost your kids. You've lost your kids. It's over. Um, Do some things. Get out of debt. Sell some junk. Sell some toys. Pay off some stuff. Raise your children. Teach them God's Word. Raise them up. And I'm not saying to isolate them. I'm not saying to, to, you know, that they they have to wear denim skirts and <laughs> nothing but you know nothing but uh but veggie tails or anything. What I am saying is that get your kids out of a system that is sold its soul to the to the adversary. Do it by all means. Yeah. what is your recommendation for like like my husband and I right now we cannot afford multiple yeah. we both work whole So what would you recommend like we talk a lot and we both work at home so we're not exhausted when the kids get home. Yeah so, Focus that time. What would be your recommendation to make sure that we're always in the know about what's going on and, and talking about those subjects, like, yeah. to make sure that we can kind of counteract anything that they're being taught about? Yeah, yeah. Number one, that's, that's a really good question, and I, I thank you for having the desire to even get involved in that to that extent, because many parents, even within private school, aren't involved that much. Um, I think it's important to come home and have discussions. S- sit at a dining room table as many nights as possible and eat dinner together as a family as many nights as possible. Good, I could t- I, one of the things I always did when I started a new school year is I would pass out a questionnaire and one of the questions as a teacher, as a school teacher, I would put on that questionnaire and everyone would be all the students would be like, why are you asking this, was how many nights a week do your family sit down and have dinner together? And that was the best, it sounds judgmental, it sounds harsh, that to me was always the best barometer of how that kid is going to be academically and behaviorally in my classroom. Never failed. Do that, have discussions, and be open, allow her to talk, to vent, and share what she learned that day, and to be able to point to God's word, have a Bible study, and say, well, let's see what God's word says about that. Let's follow that to its logical conclusion and see where that takes us. But yeah, in the meantime, I highly recommend... uh, following Dave Ramsey's financial peace university and and get to a point where ideally one parent has to work and you can just invest and pour into your kids um but that's that's really not my business and I don't understand all the circumstances and, and context around your situation but definitely check it out it changed my life so yeah let's take uh, let's take like two more questions and the it's warm I just wanted to go back to Megan. Yeah